So I was biking to work in a rainstorm one day back in October 2019, and I'm a longtime bike commuter, so I'm unfazed by rainstorms, and I was getting absolutely soaked with torrents of water as I was skidding through puddles, just in a rush to get to work. So when I got to work and had faced down the weather, I was totally surprised to find that a far more violent storm was brewing in my own body. Um, you know, in 24 hours, I felt feverish, exhausted, it hurt to pee, and I experienced all the characteristic symptoms that signaled a urinary tract infection. The irony of this situation is that I'm, I'm acutely aware of the growing threat of antibiotic resistance. I co-founded a biotech company working to develop a new type of antibacterial treatment. I know that there are challenges with the existing antibiotics, but even with all that knowledge, I was totally unprepared for the year of infection-induced complications and failures of antibiotics that awaited me. That was Natalie Ma reading from her first opinion essay titled, The Antibiotics Are Not All Right. She's the co-founder and head of business development for San Francisco-based Felix Biotechnology. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. I'm here with Debbie Donovan, Global Head of Environment, Health, and Safety at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Debbie, I've heard Takeda has made some bold environmental commitments. What are a few steps that the company is taking to reduce its environmental impact? Thanks, Angus. Takeda is dedicated to bringing life-transforming treatments to patients around the globe while working to create a more sustainable future. Last year, we became a carbon-neutral business. We focused on internal energy conservation measures and the use of green energy. We also invested in renewable energy certificates and high-quality, verified carbon offsets. Still, we know there's more to do. Takeda is committed to being net zero by 2040 and working to reach goals we've set in the areas of water, waste, and product stewardship. We're actively collaborating with industry groups to reduce our environmental impact by doing things like improving the recyclability of packaging and devices. We'll continue our efforts to mitigate environmental impact, to create better health for people, and a brighter future for the world. Thanks, Debbie. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's T-A-K-E-D-A dot com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Natalie. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I just want to mention, I am a longtime fan of STAT. Like I've been reading STAT for several years, I used to work in healthcare consulting. Um, so, you know, really appreciate the amazing work all of you do. So, Natalie, a gajillion electrons have been used up by writers and experts warning about the threat and the reality of antibiotic resistance. We'll get to that in a minute, but you write that, quote, our standard antibiotics are also bad drugs, nonspecific, 
rife with side effects, and capable of causing lasting damage. Yet they're used to treat everyone from infants to the immune-compromised elderly. That's a pretty damning statement, but it sounds like it's one born from your own experience. Can you describe your difficult journey with antibiotics? What I went through was an infection I would classify as non-life-threatening, you know, painful, uncomfortable, and potentially could evolve into a life-threatening thing had it become pyelonephritis. Um, But it was primarily a inconvenience and didn't feel great thing. And so I was absolutely surprised first that the antibiotics weren't effective in clearing the infection, but also that they were coming with all of these side effects that that I mentioned, everything from the standard, oh, GI upset, you know, I'm throwing up, I'm having diarrhea because I'm essentially carpet bombing my microbiome, to I'm having an acute allergic reaction, either anaphylactically or in sort of the death of like my skin surface, um, creating this massive rash. And this stunned me because, you know, what I had to begin with was bad, but not life-threatening again. Um, and the side effects were often in most, in this case, like far worse than the infection that I was facing, the discomfort I was facing. And so as we think about the sheer number of infections, recognizing that there are infections that do not have that same equation of threat level to the person's life, where you're trying to just kill the pathogen at all costs, um, as well as populations that are particularly susceptible to allergic reactions or, you know, the, the dose like, of an antibiotic, like infants, the elderly, who are less able to face down these side effects, uh, really, to me, spoke even more so that we needed a new solution to the problem, like something that would be better for these populations and these kinds of infections. When did you first realize that you were not going to have an easily resolvable UTI? Oh, that's a great question. It, the first First round, first two rounds of antibiotics, I figured one of those two would work. Um, so I had been to a clinic, uh, just a you know urgent care walk-in clinic uh, in Boston, and they had given me the, the download on what was currently the resistance rate of organisms to um, the two frontline therapies. And so they said, you know, we're going to administer this first. If it doesn't work, we're going to give you this second dose. Both of these are frontline for UTI. And we just sort of picked between the two based on what they resistance rate of the pop, the, the pathogen population for E. coli is underlying that. Um, so after those two failed and we moved to amoxicillin, that was something that was something where I was like, okay, this, this might be a little bit of a longer slog. When that failed, I was at a total loss. I was like, okay, this is going to be, this is a real challenge. I mean, and it was, you ended up in the emergency department with anaphylaxis. You had this, what sounds like a really terrible skin rash that you said even left scars. Yeah, exactly. It it was so surprising, particularly since in both of those cases, I had had the antibiotics previously. So I, one of the things that physicians do that's phenomenal is, you know, they ask you, have you had a tetracycline before? Have you had ciprofloxacin or fluoroquinolone before? And in both cases I had, um, I did not remember the last time I had them. Um, and I think in the case of Cipro, I'd only had it once before for traveler's diarrhea. Um, so in both cases, I did not think anything would go wrong. And it was just absolutely surprising to show, to just, to find out that one, I'm anaphylactically allergic to an antibiotic because I have never in my life been anaphylactically allergic to anything. Hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, I, this is not good. I like there is facial swelling, there's throat swelling, um, need to find my way to the ED. Um, although it did take me a little while to get there. Um, but yeah, that, like both of those reaction sets and the second one, 
I had visited an allergist for the first time trying to figure out, you know, my newfound GI problems. The allergist was not super interested in the GI problems. I learned that was a port of call for the gastroenterologist. But he's, I mentioned the rash. And he's like, can you send me pictures of this rash? <laughs> um, and I was like, sure, okay. Um, he's like, as you can tell, I'm not very, very squeamish about sharing my healthcare background. Um, and I sent him photos and he replied like, please never take this antibiotic again. It wow. could kill you next time. Um, hmm. So he was like, I, I can't be sure, but this is definitely a very strong reaction and you may have a stronger reaction the following time. From the essay, by my count, you were on five different antibiotics or antibiotic combinations. Were there actually more? So I wouldn't say that there were more antibiotics. There were the sort of traditional methods I say most women use to treat UTIs. Um, the first port of calling before the antibiotics was cranberry juice, because this is not my first run-in with a UTI. Um, and for many women, you know, that is what we're rec recommended to prevent UTIs. We, as far as I know, still are not sure exactly what the mode of action is, but having previously had urinary tract infections and drinking cranberry juice, I can say that they, it does resolve the problem some of the time. Knowing that I am an N of one, I can't say that that's statistically significantly effective, but I did try that first before going to the doctor because I was concerned, okay, what is going to be the side effect of antibiotics? Um, my microbiome is going to get absolutely trashed. I just hadn't realized exactly how bad it would get. You are fluent in the language of antibiotics and understood what was happening to you as you tried each one. How does that play out for folks who don't have your kind of understanding of how tricky antibiotics can be? Yeah, Patrick, that, that is a great question and one that I ask every day because I, as somebody who worked in healthcare consulting, worked in pricing market access, then worked in like in, in the biotech industry, overall, I struggle to figure out, like understand how do, how does the average American handle the healthcare system, period, right? It's like with mm, my knowledge. That's a bigger question. Right? It's like, this is, this is my experience. Um, my guess would be that, you know, tons of people are taking these antibiotics and we're actually getting a pretty significant underreporting of adverse events. And these are the smaller adverse events as well as the larger adverse events. I think there's a statistic out there that I think was it one in six, one in seven emergency room like walk-ins is actually due to an adverse event for antibiotics. Hmm. Um, uh, if it's an adverse event related walk-in, uh, you got to check me on that one. But like, if, if you don't know that that's what's causing it and you just, you know, have GI upset, you have a rash, you finish your course and it goes away, you don't report that. Um, even if you show up at the ED, the physician may not think to ask, or you may not remember to say, oh, I'm also on this antibiotic. So it ends up as this sort of cryptic slash, like, we don't know what your problem is, but hopefully it'll resolve. You know, I, I think most people, and I, I'm going to include myself in this category at one point, I'm taking an antibiotic. I magically think that it's going after the, the bug that's causing the problem. And it's not. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, it, it's, and Patrick, that is a great point um, and one that really is a source of frustration for me and one of the reasons I co-founded Felix Biotechnology um, because we work on more targeted solutions that would do just that. Um, and the reason that it's really easy to think, oh, okay, I have this bug and I'm taking this antibiotic and it's going to kill the bug is that it's going to do that. The challenge is with most of our traditional small molecule antibiotics is that they're the things that they're targeting to actually kill that bug, whether it's, you know, to halt growth or to actually kill in a bactericidal way, 
Um, those mechanisms are found in a a ton of bacteria throughout the body. As a result, like, you know, you're hitting, you're essentially getting collateral damage all over your body because as you take it orally or you take it intravenously, it's moving throughout the body. It's going to impact your oral gut microbiome. It will impact your skin microbiome. These are all living microbial ecological communities that are fairly complex. Um, so to, to wipe one out in entirety is going to do a lot of damage. So it's simplistic to think that you could take a probiotic supplement or a probiotic food or beverage and everything will be restored. Yes, I think particularly since um, you know, I'm not an expert in how probiotics are, are made, um, but my understanding is that there are fairly few, there's very little diversity in the final product. Like there might be, you know, waves of different diversity as you ferment, say, a sake or miso or yogurt. Um, although in the case of yogurt, I think like Lactobacillus vulgaricus is the is the the one microbe that they prefer to use and nothing else. Um, and people take it because, you know, maybe that microbe does have positive effects on the body, but it's not going to be able to restore an entire microbiome, right? That's a complex ecosystem, again, of thousands, if not more than thousands of species. You know, this must have been your whole journey was both physically challenging, but it also must have been emotionally challenging. I mean, you're going to doctors, you're wondering, am I ever going to get rid of this thing? What, what was that like? Yeah, Patrick, before I dive into this, I do want to take a step back and say, you know, this was a UTI. This is a common occurrence. This is nowhere near as severe as, as the diseases that many folks are facing down. Um, but I just remember being like that uncertainty of never knowing it was going to get better was just incredibly emotionally exhausting. I remember after taking the, the doxycycline and having that allergic reaction, um, uh, I also, I believe, may have gotten like a GI lesion, like an esophageal lesion from that because I couldn't swallow right mm. for gosh, a week and a half. And I read the package insert afterward and was like, oh, that's also a side effect of tetracyclines. Um, so, but that one's not confirmed. Uh, but yeah, I was laying in the on the couch at my, my parents' house recovering over Christmas and just like staring at the ceiling and thinking like, I am struggling to get off the couch, how in the world am I going to be able to contribute at the level I want to, to the startup that I helped found, right? It's like, and this, this is, this startup really, we want to help patients with urgent infections. We're starting in cystic fibrosis, like having talked to people with CF, it's like, that has to be an incredible effort to get like up and out of bed and take control of your care every single day, not knowing that you're whether or not this is going to be the day where a physician says that we don't have a treatment option for you, right? So like really kudos to their tenacity um, and all the patient groups who are facing this kind of uncertainty. So as you've mentioned, one reason antibiotics might not work is resistance. In a nutshell, how or why does that happen? Yeah, it, the, the short of it is that the there are two ways that uh, pathogens can evolve resistance. One of them is in the specific target um, that the antibiotic is going after. Um, so it mutates that target, can no longer bind, um, or it acquires a gene that breaks down that, that antibiotic. So the beta-lactams are a good example of this. And this is why we also give a beta-lactam inhibitor, or beta-lactamase inhibitor now with beta-lactams. Um, so that's one way that is very direct. Um, the other way that I think uh, we understand less well and sort of speaks to the evolutionary biology a little bit more, there are compensatory mutations that can be made throughout the genome that don't truly confer like a resistance, um, but allow them to sort of struggle on, if for lack of a better word, 
um, and grow in the presence of the antibiotic. And those are usually much harder to track down, right? So you have a, you know, a dozen mutations in a genome, like which of the, what is the relative contribution of each of these? Um, and so like high throughput technologies, I think are really key to developing better antibiotics, regardless of whether it's a small molecule or a, a phage-based therapy. And that's something that I think, you know, in the last decade, we've really seen antibiotics companies do as much as possible, do high throughput screening, trying to understand, you know, what is the response of, of the pathogen to an antibiotic. So you and I have been talking specifically about antibiotics, but resistance occurs against drugs that go after other pathogens too, doesn't it? Resistance is simply a evolutionary response of a cell of any kind to a, what we usually say, a chemical stimulus. So, I mean, technically, cancer cells are evolving resistance to chemotherapy or targeted therapy, right? Good point. This is an evolutionary response seen across all of life, because what you're doing is exerting a selective pressure. And to a population of cells, that population of cells has some underlying diversity of mutations, or in the case of cancer, often epigenetics, um, state state of like the literally the cycle of the cell all these things can impact like the susceptibility and it's wiping out a subset of that population and a selection and allowing the rest to proliferate so uh, an, an antifungal drug or an antiparasitic drug could also be doing the same things that an antibiotic is doing exactly yeah so the we face the same problem with antifungals like right now a lot of our frontline antifungals are azoles um, and we're seeing increasing resistance to them as well um Metronidazole does have its own side effect challenges. Um, so that that is another group. Same thing with antiparasitics, antimalarials. Like we're seeing um, resistance pop up, I think, to some some of the frontline malarial, antimalarial drugs and Southeast Asia. I think this was a decade ago now. So I'm sure it's not done nothing but increase. And then, I mean, viruses do this as well. I mean, HIV is notorious for this, which is why we keep stacking on combos of drugs to try and wipe it out or at least suppress it. In many disease areas, new drugs and even new classes of drugs are regularly rolled out. Is that the case for antibiotics or more generally antimicrobials? Not at all, Patrick. <laughs> that is, and there are a lot of, there's been a lot of words written, I think, about this and really well sort of crafted arguments as to why this is so challenging in antibiotics. Um, the two that get highlighted most often, although I think that the situation is always more nuanced than this, is that one, you've got a, a incentive for the physician to hold it back. As we've recognized antimicrobial resistance or antibiotic resistance as a problem, physicians have been pushed by public health advocates, by infectious disease specialists, to hold back the newest antibiotics that we know have the broadest efficacy because that means that when you really need it, it will work, right? Because the resistance, revolution of resistance is an exposure thing. Number of times of exposure, the population, select for cells that, you know, manage to escape the, the immune system as well as the antibiotic. You've got a drug-resistant organism. Um, you've got passage of antibiotic resistance genes by horizontal gene transfer as well. And then the... So hold on. So, so that means if you're holding it back, there's not much of a there's not much revenue coming in for a company that's then selling that drug that they probably spent millions developing. Exactly. And, and I think more than that, it is a social good, right, if it doesn't get used very frequently because it means it's it's useful for longer. We think it's really important. It's great to have, but we don't want to use it. It's like in case of emergency, break glass kind of thing. Mm. 
So what's case two? Yeah, the the second challenge with the sort of antibiotic space is the reimbursement component of this. And this is particularly for inpatient settings, um, for folks who don't know the difference between outpatient and inpatient. Inpatient is when you're checked into a hospital. So um, they give you the wristband and you're hanging out at either the emergency department or in a hospital bed elsewhere. Um, And there, based on some legislation that occurred uh, think back in the 80s, Medicare switched to inpatient lump sum payments, we call the DRG. Um, And what this is... And that's uh, the diagnosis... uh, Diagnosis diagnosis, Diagnostic Related Group. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So for inpatient, what we're going to do is we're just going to say, here is the sort of disease diagnosis this person has. Um, whether that is an infection of the bone, like a prosthetic joint infection, whether that's a heart attack, whether that is, you know, you just come in with like a respiratory infection or not, like general malaise, like you, they select from a list of DRGs and we're going to reimburse you in a lump sum based on the average cost it's treats, it takes to treat a patient with some adjustment for your geographic area, um, which the challenge with that, it, it did decrease the the prices of inpatient stays. But the challenge with that is that it is not increased or up like a, or upped um, unless something new comes out that is, you know, really important and it takes three, you know, three-ish years for that, that to catch up um, in terms of like pricing and that cost if it's life-saving. So it sounds like from what you're describing, there are policy fixes. And I know Congress is looking at two different bills or acts, the Pasteur Act and the Disarm Act. And I know people have been looking at making changes to Medicare. And I know discussions of policy are so exciting for um, for listeners, uh, not. Um, so I'm going to skip that part and get to the exciting part about what you and your company are doing with phages. And It's a fundamentally different approach to treating bacterial infections, giving people specific viruses. And that might sound weird to some listeners. Can you explain phages and how they work? Definitely. So phages or bacteriophages for their full name are viruses that are specifically targeted to bacteria Um, and not just bacteria writ large, but they have that targetability that small molecule antibiotics traditionally lack. Um, So they get down to like the species or in some cases, even the strain level. Um, And what they're doing is they're infecting cells based on, you know, what they're, what's actually in the cellular components. So I know people tend to get nervous when we mention virus. Virus is definitely not, viruses are not popular right now, um, given the pandemic challenges. Uh, But these viruses are fundamentally different than the viruses that infect humans and are not able to infect human cells. I love the the name that they have, because so bacteriophage basically means bacteria eater, doesn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's from the Greek phagos to eat. Yeah, it's very, it's a very visual uh, kind of therapy. Yeah, exactly. You get the, the bacterial nom, nom, nom. Um, so they, uh, <laughs> they, the, the, the reason that we work on them is because like, we see them as, one, an alternative in the world where the antibiotic, the traditional antibiotic pipeline is drying out. It is incredibly costly to bring a new small molecule therapeutic to market. Um, and we've discovered what we think are most of the major classes. So most of what we see coming to market now are variations on those major classes, uh, can still be efficacious. I think overall, easier for pathogens to evolve resistance to. 
right? Because if they have an underlying um, ability or there's already a resistance marker gene out there, it could tweak itself and generally find a way to, to target the new antibiotic. Um, but also not great for us folks who already have an allergic reaction to that class because it usually means we're contraindicated, like we can't have it. So what are the advantages of using phage therapy to fight bacterial infections? First off, you know, they, this is another tool for us in the toolbox. Tradi- again, traditional small molecule antibiotics, the broad spectrums for those cases where you've got, you know, hours, to, less than hours to decide what a patient gets to live or die, like those are still going to have a place. What we see phages doing um, is adding to that and providing a therapeutic that is effective, safe, incredibly safe, actually, and then highly targeted to avoid the adverse effects that we see with um, other traditional small molecule antibiotics, um, sparing people side effects, as well as, in some ways, you could imagine also reducing resistance overall, right? Because you're targeting just one species um, in the genome or in the, the microbiome instead of all these different species, some of which might evolve resistance and then become pathogens in their own right. They're discoverable in the environment. You can pick them out of wastewater, seawater, um, head down to your uh, local sewage facility um, and grab a handful of phages and characterize them um, all over the world. Right. There are libraries of them, aren't there? Yes. There are libraries in a variety of places. I mean, the to, to very much give credit where credit is due, a lot of most of the early work, if not all of it, was done in Eastern Europe. Um, so we have this interesting dichotomy of the world where the, the West ran with small molecule antibiotics, um, and partly because of their ease of manufacturability and like supply chain. Eastern Europe really stuck with phages. And so you have major phage centers still um, in Georgia, the Eliava, and then I believe in Warsaw and Poland uh, that have kept this knowledge alive throughout the, through the time of the Soviet Union to today. Hmm. What, what would be the drawbacks of phage therapy? Or the hurdles to it? There are definitely a lot of them. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, like we did not have the molecular biology expertise to understand phages and manipulate them. Functionally, we were asking groups in like the 1930s to understand something as complex as Keytruda um, and, and use it well, right? Manufacture it well and use it well. Um, so that is uh, a challenge. And then as biology has evolved, we've understood better. Okay, here's the receptors they're targeting. Here's how they work. Um, so that has helped immensely, and that is just the, the progress of biology. The two other challenges that we see with phages that you know we founded Felix to solve were one, the evolution of resistance, and two, their their narrow host range. So the evolution of resistance is a problem that again everything faces: antibiotics, small molecules, phages. Can you make that into an advantage of some kind instead of always? having it be a disadvantage where you get a more virulent, more drug-resistant pathogen. And so we've been targeting phages to key mechanisms of virulence and understanding, oh, if you give a phage, what is the evolutionary response of the the pathogen population that does survive? And what we've seen um, with our our lead therapeutic that's um, co-developed by Yale is that you you administer the phage and before and after you can see a resensitization to antibiotics um, if you target something like an efflux pump. And then you can also see reductions in inflammatory molecules and virulence for some phages based on what they're targeting. And so you're not just treating an infection and killing a majority of the bugs, but particularly for these patients with chronic infections, right? You can target mechanisms and then 
results in a pathogen population that is less virulent, less dangerous, enables another treatment option. So does this mean taking a a capsule filled with phages or are they injected or how does somebody actually get the treatment? The the phages have been administered by nearly every route of administration in the last hundred years, um, which is one of the things that sort of speaks to their safety in that last hundred years we have actually not seen that many adverse events related to phage um, that it, because we think that they're a natural component of the environment, right? It's like you're inhaling phages, you're eating them on your, in your food. They are just omnipresent. Um, and so the body has sort of learned to deal with them. Um, and so, you know, phages get in, intravenously administered, injected, inhaled. Uh, we administer through nebulizer because our lead indication is in cystic fibrosis um, for lung infections. Um, but speaks to sort of their, their safety. Well, my colleague Eric Budman wrote in 2017 about Mallory Smith, a young woman with cystic fibrosis whose lungs were infected with a drug-resistant bacteria known as Burkholderi cepatia. Her doctors tried phage therapy, but it was too late for her. It sounds like phage therapy has been used in people, people before, and you and others are trying to perfect the way it's used? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that story, I think, is like really like a frustrating one. So we've we've chatted previously with Diane Shader Smith, who is Mallory's mother, um, and that it's a very moving, like very frustrating story um, because the phages came so late, and there was preliminary evidence that they were working. Although you never know, right? You never know what could have happened. So like phages have been used for the last hundred years, uh, usually on a single patient or like patient matching basis. Um, so like you have to figure out, okay, what is the specific pathogen strain that the patient has and try and match a phage to it. Um, and the, so Mallory Smith is, is one of the patients. I think the cystic fibrosis community writ large has been really sort of strong in advocating for this. Um, you know, they're a fantastic, you know, community. And I think as word spreads, so like not just, um, Mallory, but also uh, Paige Rogers, uh, Ella Balassa, uh, they all have spoken about their experience in receiving phage therapy um, and like how it has helped them. And so I think the, the one thing we do want to be cautious of is that, you know, a, an end of one right now does not uh, an efficacy study make. Um, so what we now need to do is figure out, you know, what makes a successful therapeutic phage and the, the challenge with the patient matching model, which is something that's been done to date, is that it, it's generally incredibly costly and challenging and slow, and it's something that the physician community doesn't always understand, right? In the situations where you could do something like personalized medicine and like you could support the pricing of that, something similar to CAR-T, like maybe it makes sense. But what we see the community needing more is a generalized solution. I imagine at first... Um you're going after some really big problems like cystic fibrosis infections. Would there ever come a day when somebody like you having an, a UTI is taking phage therapy? Uh, I mean, I hope so. This is something where, I, especially for these common things, right? These these common infections that are, you know, I, w- I don't want to say quality of life because that often implies, you know, it's not it's not a big deal, but they are like uncomfortable and not life threatening. You've got a little bit of time again. So it's like, OK, we can narrow it to an E. coli infection. Um, you can give something like a phage therapy that is not going to have anywhere near the level of disruption in the microbiome. Right. Because you're, again, targeting just a single species. It's 
honing in on just the E. coli and wiping out just the E. coli and something like my UTI, although it was not caused by E. coli, um, like most UTIs are, you'd be going after just that strain of E. coli that causes the UTI and you're just sparing the E. coli in your gut, right? That is not doing anything. It's just a bystander. So let's bring it back to where we started. How are you today? Are you fully recovered from that infection? What do you think is going to happen if you get one again? Uh, I, I try not to think about that. Um, I'd say it's it's still sometimes a struggle. Like I have new sensitivities to foods that I didn't previously. Um, I had always had like a mild sensitivity to garlic, but that evolved into a strong sensitivity to garlic, uh, as well as uh, sensitivity to onions now. Oh, um, And I <laughs> see the people frowning. Yeah, it's uh, my my life is a little less flavorful, um, a lot less flavorful. Um and it is definitely a struggle. Um, for a while, I had a caffeine sensitivity that was just also terrible. Um, oh, even worse so, than onions. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was a rough. It was a rough time. Um, I, um, but also just worrying about, you know, if I get sick again, if I get another infection, is there a treatment option for me? Period. Right. Mm. Like I've just wiped out two classes of antibiotics from what I can take based on my allergic reactions, and three of them did not work. So like, what does that mean in terms of yeah, future infections I would get and would I have a treatment option? Natalie, this has been so interesting, both hearing your personal story and learning about the work that you and Felix are doing. I look forward to seeing what comes out of that work. Yeah. And thank you again, Patrick and everyone here at STAT. Like, I really appreciate like, the chance to chat with you. And we're going to keep working hard to do our best and tackle antimicrobial resistance. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. 